So, uh, penalty flag again on Professor Rodriguez. Uh, <laughs> it is. Because I, I feel it's actually my duty. Whoops, I better turn off my cell phone. Um, on page 25 in this chapter, he again says, quote, there are Hittite Mitanni treaty tablets from the region of modern Iraq. Basically, about uh, 3,400 years ago, the, the Hittites who were in central Turkey, they're mentioned in the Old Testament, the old Hittites, they signed a political treaty with the Mitannis who were basically in Iraq. And when they signed this treaty, uh, in order to invoke sort of sacred authority for this treaty, they, at the end, they put a list of 100 gods and goddesses. What's interesting is, at the end of this list, they added eight more gods who are Vedic gods. So this is, this is right at the border of Europe 3,400 years ago. Uh, political treaties are being signed in the name of the Vedic gods. And actually, they added eight to bring the total number one to 108, which is sort of a sacred magic number in India. 108. So, now, what Professor Rodriguez says is, and uh, I didn't follow the logic, he says that um, because this treaty was signed in 1400 BCE, mentioning the Vedic gods, Indra, Mitra, and Varuna, etc., this suggests that portions of the Rig Veda were composed at about the same time. So I, I didn't get it. So anyway, I just wanted to very briefly, I won't go into all the lack of logic there, I mean, you're all right at a top public university. So, I just wanted to uh, bring out something I was going to say last time, and that is when uh, Max Muller first brought in this theory that the Veda was only like 1,400, 1,500 years old, there was a tremendous outcry among practically all the leading Indologists at the time, all the leading Sanskritists at the time, said, what are you talking about? And so here are just a few brief quotes. And if you know Sanskrit studies, the history of Sanskrit studies, these are very famous, very prominent scholars from the 19th century. Goldstucker said, there's not a single reason to account for his accounting. H.H. Uh, H. Wilson said his uh, chronology was much too brief, too protracted. Bueller said, it's inconceivable that the Indians raced through these literary periods at a furiously fast pace. Uh, Jacoby, another big name, said, it, it is easy to see that this estimate is far below the minimum of the possible period. And so, uh, Jacoby, for every 200 years in Gemini Mueller, he gave 1,000 years based on all kinds of technical arguments involving the nature of Indian history and, 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 and ancient Indian sociology and so on. Winternitz, another, these are all very famous people. Since all the external evidence fails regarding the date of the Veda, we are compelled to rely on the evidence, he, he put this in italics, the evidence out of the Veda itself. In other words, our external evidence is, is never going to do it. Now, how did Miller, how did Max Muller, not Miller, Max Muller, how did he react to all this criticism from the leading Sanskrit of his time? How? He agreed with them. So Max Muller said, I need hardly say that I agree with almost every word of my critics. I have repeatedly dwelt on the hypothetical character of the dates. All I have claimed for them has been that they are minimum dates. In other words, Miller is saying the Veda cannot possibly be later than this. Uh, like most Sanskrit scholars, I feel that the times I gave are scarcely sufficient to account for the growth of the poetry and religion. And at the end of his life, Muller said, 
whether the Vedic hymns were composed 1,000 or 1,500 or 2,000 or 3,000 years BCE, in another quote he said even 15,000 BCE, no power on earth will ever determine. That's Herr Professor Dr. Max Müller. And now what happened is, basically everyone did a dog pile on Müller when he came up with these dates. And so then, uh, some other scholars like Jacobi and others started proposing much more ancient dates, like the Vedas could have been 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. Then there was a huge Christian backlash against that because it messed up the flood story. You know, we talked about that last time. The flood is about 4,500 years ago. You're messing with our sacred beliefs. You're destroying Western civilization. And so it just kind of, it was kind of like a standoff. And then Mueller's dates just sort of stayed there. And then the next generation of scholars came and it just became the way it is. And everybody forgot that no one ever agreed to this. So anyway, moving right along here. Uh, now, the Vedas. I wrote this on the board. Uh, you've read about this before, but I want to just make it a little visual for you. The oldest strata of the Sanskrit literature. That's all we've got for early Indian history. All we've got is these books and, and some archaeology. But as I said, my professor at Harvard always used to say, posh, don't speak. I mean, you, you could learn something from the archaeology, but not that much. And so here is all we've got. And the, it's like geology. There are different strata. And so here's the oldest strata of the Vedas. They're called Sanghitas, which literally means collection, literally putting things together, Sanghitas. So there are four Vedas in this oldest strata. These are chronological, according to standard calculations. There are problems even with this, but this is what every book's going to say about it, so for now we'll just talk about this. Uh, and each name, the name of each Veda is a definition of what it is. The names actually tell what the book is. The word Rig in Sanskrit means a hymn. This is the hymn book. And this is considered to have all the oldest, all the oldest um, Sanskrit because, as I explained before, the actual physical sound, if you get one syllable wrong, one accent wrong, you can just sort of literally like blow up in your face. It's like if you, know, if you make bombs in your garage and you just put one wrong thing in. So, so rig means hymns. Yajus means, this, this root yaj here is the, is the root of the word for sacrifice. The, the word for sacrifice is yajna. And so the word yajus means the sacrificial formulas, talking about the sacrifices, what they mean, how you do them. Not just, the rig is just the hymns that you chant at the sacrifice. This is sort of like, you know, ancient sacrifice for dummies. This tells all the formulas, like how to do it and what it means, what the results are. Sama means the chant, the melodies. This is sort of the musical vein that tells you how to chant the hymns. The Tarva is kind of like the ancient voodoo thing. As it mentions in the book, for some time, the Torah Veda wasn't accepted. You find a lot of references to Trayi, the three, the three Vedas, because Torah Veda has like has a lot of interesting stuff, but also how to put spells on people, good and bad. And so the Brahmins thought this is a little weird. But gradually it made it. Gradually it made the team. You know, didn't make the first cut, but then you know our Torah Veda tried out again and eventually made the team. What does the word mean? Tarva. It, it, it's not so obvious like the others. It, it's sort of a name. There was a sage named that. Now, for all these four Vedas, these are called, these are called in Sanskrit shakas, branches. And the idea is, according to the ancient accounts, and I mentioned in the first day of class that I want to let these ancient sages speak for themselves, have their own voice. doesn't mean we have to believe them, but at least they deserve a hearing. 
And so what the ancient texts tell us, what they say about what they're doing, and what other sacred literature says is going on, is that Vyas, the great Vyas, everyone in India knows Vyas. Uh, v actually is, is just V, which means to divide or separate us to place. So it's actually his title, the editor, the divider. Vyas, it is said, divided the Vedas, made the, the present organization we have, and he turned over the Vedas. Each Veda was given to a great sage. And each sage became the center of a Brahminical community. So in, in effect, each Vedic branch was turned over to, to a community of Brahmins. And the, so there was a Rig Veda community that sort of guarded and preserved and studied the Rig Veda. There was a Yajur Veda community. These were historical communities that protected and, and uh, preserved and explained and taught these Vedas. And so it came down within these Vedic communities. Now, the Brahmins are basically sort of like, it's sort of like uh, shop talk among Brahmins. It's, it's sort of like the original ancient Veda blog. In the sense that the Brahmins, the, the Brahmins in each Veda community are talking about their Vedas, what they mean, how you do them. And so that's what the Brahmin is. Now, as I will explain a little later in class, I beat the clock. Even in the oldest literature, you find actually very serious philosophical notions. So although, as you read in the book, it came down to the karmakanda, the ritualists, the yanakanda, the philosophers, the theologians, or speculators, actually, even in, in these ancient Vedas, you find all the seeds, all the basic notions of the later philosophy, and I'll explain that in detail. So anyway, these are the Brahmins. And uh, there were certain specific Brahmin literatures, like for example, for the Rig Veda, there's two Brahmins, the, the Aitareya Brahman, the Koshitiki Brahman, and the Yajur Veda, which was divided into two, as I explained, the black and white Yajur Veda. Each one has its Brahmins and so on. Then, after the Brahmins, there are the Aranyakas. The word Aranya in Sanskrit means forest, and forest books, people that want to get out of the city. You know, get away into the country and have a little more space and be able to have practice spiritual life, you know, away from all the pressures and demands of city life. They had their books called the Aranyakas. The Aranyakas are seen kind of as trans transitional because here still the basic concern is the rituals and the Brahmins. But there are philosophical notions here which get a little bit developed here. By the time the Aranyakas, it's kind of, there, there's growing concern for what does this all mean? Like, why are we doing these rituals? And what are we going to get out of all this? And what is life really about? And what happens when you die? And all that. And so, serious interest in life. And by the time the Upanishads, that's really what it's about. It, the Upanishads, again, still talk about rituals, but their real concern is wisdom, knowledge. What does this all mean? So this is the basic framework. That, and, and it was Max Muller, in his attempt to date, uh, the Veda said, well... Uh, let's go backwards. Like the Upanishads must have been written about this time based on a speculation, based on a speculation, based on a speculation. If you know logic, you're trying to speculate. You sort of exponentially get less and less likely to be right. So it's a guess based on a guess based on a guess that the Upanishads are about this old. And how long would it take people to get from the kind of Sanskrit you get in Uraniakas to this Sanskrit, Guado chronology, which Muller himself said probably very likely wrong, I have the slightest idea of just a speculation guess, and no one else accepted, and the whole linguistic process has been rejected. So anyway, he said, well, okay, 200 years here, 200 years here, 200 years here, which everybody else said, that's absurd. And Mueller said, yeah, I guess it is absurd. But everybody forgets that they all said that. Anyway, so now, the main 
topic in these Vedas. Like, what are the Vedas about? At least at this level, it's about sacrifice. Yogi, I want to talk about that. Sacrifice is all about giving back. There's a great old song by George Harrison. Anyway, people forget to give back. Anyway, sacrifice basically means, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita talks about sacrifice in a very interesting way. He calls it a wheel which has been made to turn. A wheel which has been made to turn. That's how he describes sacrifice. And the Sanskrit is Bhavarti uh, Tanchakram. I won't go into all the grammar, but that's in the third chapter of the Gita. A wheel that has been made to turn. So the, the idea is that when you're born on the earth, you receive so many gifts, like gift number one, your body. You know, you get to be alive. And then it rains, there's water. If it stops raining, the water dries up. You know, water doesn't just come in those little plastic bottles you get the store. If it doesn't rain, no one, no one has water. So we get gifts of water. There's heat, there's fire, there's all the basic physical elements that allow us to construct a viable human life. So, and then we receive knowledge from previous, I mean, for example, there's street lights in Gainesville, like, who knows who put them in, but somehow we get to walk under street lights at night. Someone paved the road, someone planted trees. So we have all these debts. The, the idea was, this culture that when you're born, you owe so much. And ultimately, we owe to God or the divine. So therefore, the basic idea was sac- of sacrifice was this wheel made to turn, is that from God or the gods, all these gifts are coming back, and you have to offer them back. You have to offer them back. And offering back is sacrifice. It builds moral character, teaches one to be grateful, teaches one to be mindful. And it's, it's just like, you know, you pay for the electric bill or your water bill or your gas bill if you don't, they turn off the lights and water and everything. So that was the idea. You gotta pay your these are just cosmic utilities, basically. These are just cosmic utilities. And also uh, it said that you get certain benefits because if you reciprocate with the universe through its authorized administrators, you get certain gifts. Now what happened is over time is that for a lot of people this whole religious or Vedic sacrifice thing just became a business plan. In other words, like, never mind, like, the gods, well, that's nice. Maybe there's gods up there. That's cute. But the real point is, sacrifice is a mechanism. So some people conceived of sacrifice as just a mechanism. You don't need to be devoted to God. You don't need to love anything. You don't need to, anything like that. You know, all you need to do is the mechanism. You know, if you do it right, you'll get the result. And we'll talk about that in a later class. There was a whole wing of Vedic ritual technocrats that developed this idea that who needs the gods? The gods are just like, they're just up there. They, they don't count. It's like you go to, go to get a driver's license and you're qualified and you pay the money, you pass the test. The guy behind the desk has to give you a driver's license. He or she has no discretionary power to refuse you the license. So this idea developed that the gods and goddesses are just sort of like cosmic bureaucrats. But anyway, we'll talk about that much more later. But some other things were going on. Uh, okay, second penalty flag for Professor Rodriguez. He also makes a distinction that, which is, uh, of course, the correct one, that all this literature here was called Shruti. You've seen that term, Shruti. And then Indian religion continued to develop in very powerful ways. and They developed a whole new body of literature, which they called Smriti. You know, Shruti, what you hear, Smriti, what you remember. That was all talked about in the book. Now, the Shruti, because it was older, it's like, you know, the Romans used to say old is gold, so because this was older, this was original, 
there's obviously a certain status attached to this older literature. So that the later literature had to be verified against the older literature. Now, as, as, as the book points out, books like the Bhagavad Gita were like sui generis in their own category because it was, so, it was just so overwhelmingly uh, popular and revered that it was just kind of like whatever category it's in, it's the book. But now, uh, your book says on, uh, in, well, our book says on page 37, subsequent religious literature, Smriti, Smriti literature, often strives to be included in the sacrosanct revealed Shruti category. The Mahabharata epic, for instance, which we're going to talk about, we're going to talk all about the Mahabharata, lays claim to being a fifth Veda, although this claim is not taken very seriously. So, I have to throw up a penalty for it here. Because, although he does admit then, in the same page, that while the conventional designation of Shruti is the telling hallmark of orthodoxy, Smriti literature, plays no less of a role in shaping the religious lives of Hindus. Now, so this pretentious claim of the Mahabharata to be a fifth Veda, which no one takes seriously, the problem with what's in the book is that the Shruti literature itself takes the claim seriously. The Shruti takes it seriously. Which, anyway, uh, that's why I had to put a penalty flag. For example, the Chandogya Upanishad, which is generally the standard academic view is it's the second oldest Upanishad. It's, it's in the oldest level of Upanishads. The Chandogya Upanishad. Totally unquestioned pedigree. Now, in the Chandogya Upanishad, in the third book, chapter 4, text 1, it talks about Itihasa Purana. Uh, I should have written the board anyway. Iti. This is a category which includes the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, which we're going to talk a lot about. Iti in Sanskrit means thus, ha in the past, and asa from the verb to be, same s as in English is, was. Thus it was in the past. And so itihasa is a Sanskrit word for history. And purana, the word pura, uh, like sort of copy with English previous, uh, pura means before or older than Purana, the Ana kind of means time, so an ancient time, Purana. So the Puranas are ancient stories, sort of, you know, ancient stories. So together, Itihasa Purana is a genre of literature, which you get all these ancient stories. Now generally, the, the two famous Itihasas are Mahabharata and Ramayana. There are 18 principal Puranas and so on. And generally, those literatures are categorized as Smriti in the later category of literature. However, the very term Itihasa Purana indicates that the tradition, this Vedic tradition, has always believed that even if these literatures are written down later, they tell stories that go back forever. Therefore, the Chandogya Upanishad, this very ancient Upanishad that no one questions in terms of Vedic pedigree, says, Here's a quote from 712. Hear what the Sanskrit sounds like. Which means, I'll translate this for you. This is spoken by Narada, this great sage Narada, the son of Kumar, these great Vedic sages, saying that uh, I have studied the Rig Veda, Yajur Veda, Sama Veda, Tarva Veda. And I have studied the Itihasa Purana, which is the fifth Veda. 
Again, no one takes it seriously, right? Just the Vedas take it seriously. So, pancha, pancha in Sanskrit for five, that's where the word punch comes from, you know, the drink punch, because they have this drink of five liquids in India, and the British called it punch, five. Like Pentagon, we have penta. Anyway, so, uh, you can understand this very simple, panchamang vedam, fifth veda. So then it goes on. Then Sanakumar says to Narada, Rigveda Yajurveda, he's the teacher. Sanakumar is the teacher, Narada is the student. Rigveda Yajurveda, Sanaveda, Tarana, Chaturi, Itihasupranana. He repeats that, yeah, you're right. These are the four Vedas, and the Itihasupranana is the fifth Veda. This is right in the Vedas, it's being said, but no one takes it seriously. And then they go on and on saying this that speech, Bach, the god of speech, teaches us to understand these Vedas and the fifth Veda. It goes on and on and on how. So the Itihasa Purana and the Mahabharata is the most famous Itihasa of the fifth Veda, according to the Vedas. So someone took that seriously. Now, as we know, that, uh, well, what I want to say is that it wasn't just that there was a time in India where when everybody was just into rituals and no one thought. There was like zero thinking going on. Everybody just wanted to do a ritual. There was always thinking going on. And so... Other literatures in which they think and speculate and philosophize are in a later type of Sanskrit because no one needed to preserve the original sound. But anyway, I want to show you how the seeds, at least, or all the basic ideas of the Upanishads, the philosophical tradition, are right there in the Vedas. Um, so, the proof, first of all, there's a, there's a um, I mean, rituals are found everywhere. If you know your Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, Fire sacrifice, no one ever eats anything in the Iliad and the Odyssey. No respectable lady or gentleman in the Iliad and the Odyssey eats or drinks anything unless it's been offered to the gods. You find sacrifice in ancient Israel, you find it in the Persian culture. Basically, all over the world, people were doing sacrifice at a certain stage. And they were often doing sacrifice to get benefits in this world. So that's found everywhere. But there's something in the Rig Veda which you don't find everywhere, which is philosophical and actually extremely precocious ahead of its time. And that is, you find the statement, the Rig Veda 1, 164, 46. This is the Rig Veda. That there are all these gods. However, there is one existing truth, but the sages talk about it in different ways. This is not a fanatical religion. They're saying there's actually one highest truth, but sages talk about it in different ways. So again, Max Muller coined the term henotheism. Uh, it is a type of monotheism, but which is liberal and tolerant and recognizes the presence of God in many places throughout the universe. Now, there is a more explicit development of this idea in the tenth book of the Rig Veda. This is the first book, and there are ten books, so it's like the bookmarks of the Rig Veda. In the tenth book, there is a very powerful statement about this, explaining this, in perhaps the most famous of all Rig Vedic hymns, which is still chanted everywhere in India by Brahmins, the Purusha Sutta, which you all answered questions about. So I'd like to quote to you a few verses from the Purusha Sutta to show you how it gives these, makes these amazing statements, which actually became the seeds of much later developments of, in Hinduism. So the, the, uh, in the second verse of the Purusha Sutta prayer, which is the uh, Tenth Book of the Rig Veda, chapter 90, we find this statement. 
and the word purusha, often translated man, doesn't mean man, it means a person. And in, in this ancient culture, persons and people aren't just human beings, not just men and women. There are people all over the universe. So purusha does not refer to an earthling, a human. So the translation man, as you find sometimes, I think, is, uh, is unfortunate. But anyway, purusha evedan sarvam jat putam yachat bhavyam utam yeshano jat annenati rovati. This is very amazing. The Purusha alone is this entire universe. The Purusha is the, the person. The person is the universe. Talking about this is... Now, for those of you who did get this book, if anyone got it, maybe no one got it, uh, the point is made that... Um, the monism, which you find later, like it's all one, but doesn't talk about a god. The monism, the question was probably something you couldn't answer because you have the wrong book. The monism is not theism. In other words, just say it's all one doesn't mean you believe in a god. You can just believe that things exist in a certain way so that everything somehow is one with everything else. But you may have no god in your system. What we have here is a monistic theism. In other words, everything is one because everything is this person, is this god. So you find the statement, all that was, jet bhuta, all that was, jet bhavya, all that will be, is this person, this creator. And then, um, another amazing statement, which is not talked about so much sometimes, mahima, such is the glory of this person, such is the glory of this person. However, there's even more, jayang's jaya this person has even greater glories, namely that all creatures in this universe are just one fourth of the existence of that creator. And and the immortal in heaven is three fourths. So this entire universe is only one fourth of the creation. So it talks about a higher creation, a higher world. All of these things will become very important later in Hinduism, but they're here in the Rig Veda. And another thing is, even though the Purusha was sacrificed, the Purusha didn't go away. It's not like his Purusha was killed, because the Purusha still continues to create. And I gave the example of how, say, this day in India, people enter the Ganges, they take Ganges water and offer it back to the Ganges. So, because the Purusha is the universe, and the universe is the Purusha in the sense of, what does that mean? We're part of the universe, what does it mean? What is our identity with the Purusha? So, in the, in the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, the old Upanishad, there's one interpretation, there are other interpretations, other Upanishads. Basically, what I want to say is the whole Vedanta tradition, which we'll be studying quite a bit, the whole Vedanta tradition is going to wrestle with this. It's going to wrestle with these two statements from the Rig Veda, basically. Because the one I quoted from the uh, first book of the Rig Veda, Ekam Sadi Brahma Udhavadanti, it's in the neuter tense. It talks about the one truth in the neuter. That one truth, the sages describe in different ways. But in the tenth book of the Purusha, Purusha is a person. It's a person. That's what the word Purusha means, person. And so the whole Vedanta debate and the whole intellectual history of India, the sacred intellectual history, is going to try to figure out, is there really an absolute person? Or is there just something which is Brahman? And so when I talk about it, it's all going to come from these two grammatical ways of talking about it. And the third group is going to say that it's all about the ritual. And so that's basically what's going to be the center of Indian intellectual history for, for many, many centuries. And it's all actually, it's coming from the Rig Veda. 
So, uh, any questions on that so far? No? Okay. Have a few minutes left. Uh, now, I, I want to end with something which I think is very, very important. Okay, third and last flag, penalty flag. On page 26, the author says, of the various deities to whom hymns are addressed in the Rig Veda, Agni and Indra each received about 200 hymns suggesting their high status among the gods of the Aryan pantheon. So in the Rig Veda, there's all kinds of hymns addressed to different deities, but the ones that get the most runs, you know, the most scores, points, are Agni and Indra. And therefore, sort of by the old bean counting technique, these must have been the most prominent gods. The problem is, the problem is here, it, it, that's what the author said, is that if you go back to this ancient literature, no one else thought that. The families, these extended Brahminical communities and families that were preserving the Vedas, making the most ancient commentaries thousands of years ago, the people were the care. they didn't think that. They didn't think that. They had a very different opinion about it. So I want to go over that. What's, what about all these gods? What's really going on? Uh, first of all, Agni. Agni was actually considered the lowest of the gods. To give an example, let's say you're at the University of Florida right now. And so therefore, you have to sometimes go to, you know, do things with the administration, pay fees, or talk to administrators, or whatever. So those are the people, various people that are actually sort of manage this school. You have to talk to them. They're the people you deal with. That doesn't mean that you believe that the administrators of this university are the most important, powerful people in the universe. Or even in, or even in Florida, or even in the United States. It's just that's who you deal with. So because these Vedic people were dealing with sacrifice, Agni was the person they had to deal with. Agni was the person they had to deal with. However, he was a messenger to the gods. He mediated between gods and men. He was, and, and therefore you find in the, I'll just get right to the, to the point here. In the Aitareya Brahman, the Aitareya Brahman, which is the oldest Brahman of the oldest Veda. So this is practically the, one of the oldest commentaries we have on the Vedas, thousands of years back, by the people who actually were in charge of it. And if you read the Aitareya Brahman 1.1.1, the very first verse, what it says is, Agnirvai Deva Namagamo Vishnu Paramasarantarena Sarvanya Devadam. Of all the gods, Agni is the lowest, Vishnu is the highest. Therefore, one who worships uh, Agni, through Agni, through the fire to Vishnu, it encompasses all the gods. Vishnu is the highest. So, very thousands of years ago, people claimed that the Purusha of the Rig Veda, the Purusha who, who is the universe, who creates the universe, is Vishnu. That claim was made long, long, long ago about Vishnu. And Vishnu will become the single most important deity in Hinduism. Although there are other very important deities. But, yes? I think it's interesting that um, the Agni God is a messenger mm -hmm. of God. Because if all the little gods make up the big God, how can he have a relationship with himself? If you know what I mean? Like yeah. Right. Okay, it's not very good. It's, um, when we say that the Purusha is everything, whereas they will say Vishnu is everything. It's not just like in the sense that um, there are so many molecules in a piece of paper. 
they had a much more sophisticated idea that even though the universe is Vishnu or the Purusha, but the Purusha still stands apart. And in the Bhagavad Gita and in the Upanishad, at this point we discussed, so it's actually a philosophy of one and different. There's a oneness, but there's still a difference. There's variety in the oneness. It's not an absolute monism. And so, and so we'll actually get to that. We'll talk a lot about that, because that's going to be the heart of the great religious battles in India. Over. Yes? So how can you mention that there wasn't a mention of Vishnu in the, in the religion? No, no, there are hymns, but, but there are not as many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are hymns to Vishnu. In fact, there, there's one which is extremely famous and quoted all the time. Tad Vishnu, this is a hymn in, in book one of the Greek Veda, chapter 22, text 20. Tad Vishnu paramang padam sadapashanti surya. That the sages always look toward that supreme abode of Vishnu, or that supreme position of Vishnu. Now, there was one of the greatest uh, Sanskrit and Vedic scholars of the 20th century, which I guess is a long time ago for some of you. Uh, was a professor named uh, Kuiper from Holland. And he wrote an article uh, about Vishnu in the Veda, in which he says that, um, let me find where I put it. Uh, yes, he wrote an article called The Three Strides of Vishnu. So Kuiper wrote, so we are driven to the conclusion that at an early date, Vishnu occupied a more central position than either Indra or Varuna who are the protagonists of the opposed groups of devas and asuras and thus stand in contrast with them. Vishnu must consequently represent the unity of the two antagonistic parties, upper world and other world. He stands for and is each of the two worlds. Now, a similar statement is made by a very famous scholar named Wendy Doniger, who has probably the most popular translation of the Rig Veda, not the whole thing, but different verses, from the University of Chicago. And she says about Vishnu that um, Vishnu is, is, is a um, benevolent, appropriate, typically Vedic god. Now, this famous verse I just quoted, Tat Vishnu Paramang Padang, the three, that Vishnu is famous for taking three great steps, and with two steps covering both halves of the universe, and the third step going beyond to the highest place. And there are later stories in the Quran about what these steps mean how Vishnu stepped over the universe. And so, what Wendy Doniger says, that it is significant these three steps are needed to accomplish that, well, I'm sorry for being mumbling here and babbling. Basically, the universe is two-part. You find this in all ancient cultures. You have a two-part universe. You have heaven and earth. The world's basically divided in heaven and earth. But you have three steps for Vishnu, not just two steps, because the third step actually goes to the highest region. And that's what you find in the Rig Veda, in the Purusha Sutta, namely that uh, only one-fourth of the creation is this universe. Three-fourths are a higher region, which then becomes identified with Vishnu, with the Purusha, with the Paramang Padam, that highest position, the Paramang Padam. So here are more, in other words, what I'm trying to get at is sort of uh, not quite as uh, neat and organized as I hope that would be is that if you look at these earliest Vedic literatures, it's not just a bunch of gods. There is a philosophical trend, and that philosophical current is moving toward Vishnu as, as a god, as a, as a supreme transcendental god. Here's some more, some more evidence for that. In the Taittiriya Sangita, which is uh, here, in, in this branch of the Vedas, uh, the Taittiriya Sangita, you find this statement, in the Vedas, 
Vishnu Yajyo, Agnyavamo Devadanang Vishnu Paramo. The sacrifice is Vishnu. Remember the Purusha Sukta. So the, the Purusha Sukta says that, that the Purusha became the sacrifice. Now you have the Yajurveda, which is explained in the Rig Veda. This is just hymns. There are no explanations here. This, these are just hymns. The Yajurveda tells you that's what the word Yaju or Yajus means. It tells what the sacrifices mean. And it says here the sacrifice is Vishnu, and the Rig Veda says the sacrifice is the Purusha. Hence, as far back as you, as you can go, the Brahmins concluded the Purusha, the Creator, is Vishnu. Now, and again, just like in the Aitareya Brahman, also in the Taitariya Sangita, we find Agni is the lowest of deities. And Vishnu Paramo, Vishnu is the highest. We find in the Shatapata Brahmana, probably the, one of the most famous and widely read Brahmanas, the Shatapata Brahmana means the hundred path Brahman, says, Te Yajyameva Vishnu Puraskrit Yeyu, placing at their head Vishnu the sacrifice. Or Vishnu is the sacrifice, and placing Vishnu at their head, the gods proceeded. And then you find again the Shatapata Brahmana, Purushoha Narayana, the Purusha is Narayan, another name for Vishnu. So people were thinking back then, they weren't waiting thousands of years for Western Hinduism books to be written. And they had their own views on these things, and it's a coherent powerful view. Whether you agree with it or not is another matter. But at least we have to hear what they are saying at this very early point. At the same time, Indra, as Wendy Doniger points out in her translation of the Rig Veda, Indra had a troubled family life, his birth was unclear, unnatural, strong hints he may have killed his father, patricide was not like a super cool thing to do. He was challenged by his own son, who he apparently overcomes. He's so anthropomorphic, he's so human-like. This may have led worshippers, even in Vedic times, to devalue Indra, the beginning of a process that culminates in his total loss of worship in the Hindu period. So, in terms of sort of like a generic god, like a god that kind of fills the bill, that acts like a god, if you, if you think of uh, Plato's revolt against Homer in the Republic, that come on, everybody is saying, if you look at the gods and goddesses in, the, in Homer, they're like, you know, disturbed adolescents. We need, we, need, we need real deities. We need real deities that kind of do the religious thing. And so, and so back then, Indra didn't cut the mustard. I mean, there's a beautiful hymn glorifying him. He continues to be accepted as a real god, but he never really rose above this kind of self-interested ritual for to get things. He never attained a status in India of like a real full-on capital G God. And as far as Agni, we've already talked about, as far as Rudra who becomes Shiva, I, I said to you before that in our in our textbook it said that, you know, Shiva's not mentioned in the Rig Veda, but Wendy Doniger in her translation, which is the most popular one today, she's a very famous scholar at the University of Chicago, says that uh, Rudra there's a, there, there's a rich theology about Rudra which culminates in the Hindu god Shiva. So, so the whole worship of Rudra ends up in Shiva. So everyone else, everyone in India kind of... And Rudra still is a name for Shiva today. In any case, Rudra's problematic too. Uh, back in the Veda, Rudra's fierce and destructive like a terrible beast. Uh, he's the embodiment of wildness and unpredictable danger. 
he is addressed more with the hope of keeping him at bay than with the wish to bring him near. Like a terrible beast, a wild storm, the sages beg him to turn his malevolence elsewhere. He also has a good side, I mean, you know. But what I'm trying to say is, you look at Indra, Agni, uh, Shiva did attain a great following, so has one. He's still, but still, according to scholars, 70% of Hindus are Vaishnavas. So the big winner here, historically, is going to be Vishnu. And we'll see that as we study it. The great epics, the great Itihasas, which are the fifth Veda, for those who take that seriously, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata are both about Vishnu. Rama is understood as an, an avatar incarnation of Vishnu. In the Mahabharata, it's about Krishna, who's also Vishnu. So, again, uh, the prominence which Vishnu is going to attain is back, it goes all the way back to the Vedas, because you have the Purusha as the universe creates the universe, there's nothing but the Purusha. The, the Yajurveda says that the Purusha is in fact Vishnu because Vishnu is that sacrifice, that primordial sacrifice. And the Aitareya Brahmana, a commentary, well, the commentary on the Rig Veda from the Brahmins who were in charge of the Rig Veda thousands of years ago, 1.1.1 of all the gods, Vishnu is the highest. So, there's a pattern here. And... I had to mention that because our book said that, well, anyway. Oh, one point is, I guess, uh, anyway, that's not right. One thing before you uh, race out is that someone turned in some answers and uh, didn't put their name on it. So if you'd you like credit for this, if, this, if anyone can recognize this, if anyone's the author of this, still in the class, please let me know. And then I brought the papers back also in case anyone... Uh, any questions, by the way? I don't want. I don't want to. Yes. Sorry, someone's asking a question. Could have gotten out earlier. Go ahead. Uh, just a small detail, like why in the first book it says the neuter gender, like in the tenth book it says it's the Purusha. We talk that way even today. We may talk about the truth, capital T. I mean, sometimes we may speak in personal theistic terms. Sometimes we may talk about the truth. So it's. Uh, and both these neuter, you could say, neuter and personal ways of talking about God are, you know, are, are going to be very much manifested in the Upanishads.